It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here with an update on the Onion Router. First of all, Tor doesn't even stand for the Onion Router anymore. And now with hidden services, it's about twice as good as ever before. Tor 2.0, our topic next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 394, recorded March 6th, 2013. Tor 2.0. Security Now is brought to you by Rackspace, the open cloud company. At Rackspace, build what you want, where you want, and how you want, all backed by their world-renowned fanatical support. Try it today. Download the open cloud at rackspace.com slash open. And by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, your loved ones online. And we thank this guy for making it possible, the explainer in chief, Steve Gibson. <laughs> Let's get ready to lock it down. Hey, That's Steve. me. Hey, hey, Leo. And you're wearing your Atari shirt. Shoot, I should have worn oh, my Atari jacket. Of cap. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just was, in fact, I should show you this. There's a fun uh, Macintosh uh, you app. Took, you took your green hat off. You're well, not... St. Patrick's Day is not for another. Oh, okay. 11 right. days. But there's a uh, really fun app on the Mac um, that you would really, you and a few old farts like us would appreciate. It's a terminal app that, that emulates an Atari or a Commodore. It's called Cathode because you could choose from different <laughs> cathode tubes. Nice. And uh, and it, it has all of the things that we used to hate, like the jitter, the rolling, the you have it. There's a no degauss. There's a degauss uh-huh. button, so it goes boom and bounces. Oh, so it. it's really. I mean, it's a real trip down memory lane. Unfortunately, I mean, it's <laughs> you, you, it's a good way to get a headache. So I don't, you know, it's $10. I'm not sure what the, uh, but it's the actual term. It's the uh, Mac term app built into it. So you, you could, I mean, you can actually use it as a terminal uh, if you want. Ah, so, so the point is that it's the, the visual display emulating an old school right, CRT. Right, But if I type LS ah. or whatever, uh, it actually yeah, works. Nice. And so Nice now, little fade out on, on yeah. the cursor. Yeah, you see, oh, you're, you're watching, yeah. Yeah. And you can change the uh, baud rate. You can here's a two eighty six, here's a C sixty four. Let me see. I wonder if they have an Atari. Uh, I'm pretty sure they do. Yeah, wow. this might this might be it. Um, I'll make it bigger, and then. <laughs> That's very nice. That I don't know if it's worth ten dollars. It's not worth ten dollars, but you can't resist it. And then you can try different. Here's a nineteen seventy six TV. <laughs> here's a nineteen ninety one TV. Well, a little bit better. We don't have the scanning anymore. Um, you can even change. I don't know if you can see this, but there's a reflection of a room on it, and you can upload a picture uh, of anything you want, so that you can actually see. 
yourself in this in the in the thing. <laughs> Isn't that hysterical? They really went overboard. It's yeah. crazy, man. It's crazy. <laughs> you, <laughs> I can't imagine what the pur- the purpose of it is, but I just thought you of all people would appreciate it. It is ten dollars. It's on. Uh, on the, the app store on the Mac. If you want it, it's out. on the internet. It's it's the best reason to buy a Mac. <laughs> All right, what are we going to do today? We're going to talk finally about the new, relatively new features of Tor. Um, and interestingly, Tor, we, we did a podcast on it years ago where T-O-R was considered an acronym for the Onion Router. Right. And it's no longer officially an acronym, and it's not all uppercase. Oh. Uh, I actually am still in the habit of doing that. So my, my notes have it in uh, uppercase, although elsewhere here I remembered that it should be cu- uppercase T, lowercase O and R. Huh. Um, we've, we've touched on this a few times recently because the topic has come up, and because we've never talked about the recent changes in Tor. Actually, Tor had its 10th birthday last September, so it's now 10 years old. But the way it works today is completely different from the way it worked when we first described it. So that's why I called the episode Tor 2.0, and actually that's some of their documents do the same thing, because they change the way the protocol functions. And one of the really interesting new things that Tor offers is sort of the flip side of its traditional role. Traditionally, users used the Tor system to hide themselves from internet servers that are on the public internet. So that, for example, if some government or other agency was monitoring a service that was controversial, whether it be political or pornography or or just you know you know whatever, if you just use a normal connection, they, as we all know, get your IP address. Well, instead, the the original Tor system, as does the new one, allows you to essentially bounce around through and among Tor nodes until finally you emerge from one having sufficiently confused the authorities that they have no idea, you know, who you are. So the IP address of the service that sees you is that of a so-called Tor exit node. And we've talked about exit nodes before and how, in fact, we, we covered a story a few months ago where some guy was running a whole bunch of Tor exit nodes in his living room and he got in trouble with the authorities because they saw... They saw his IP doing controversial things when, in fact, he was just an exit node on the Tor network and it was other people whose identities were hidden. So this recently came up because we were talking about TorMail.org that offers, that, that, that is a user of the newer facility, which is sort of the other side of this, where service providers like websites or instant messaging or email, can use the Tor system to hide themselves. So, so or more, Tor or more you, to the point, hide the person using the service. 
No, no, that's it. Hide the service. Oh, hide the service. Yeah, see, Torah has always hidden the person using the service, but the services were out on the public internet. Ah. What's now been added is a means for the services themselves to be hidden so that th- so it's possible to offer services that are accessible through Tor but not accessible on the public internet so that no one can see who is using these services or that they even exist or if they do exist there's no way to figure out where they actually are ah. so it's yeah it's like the flip side of what Tor has traditionally done, and we're gonna I'm gonna explain this week how that's done because this is good because I need re-education as you could tell from last week, I misunderstood the capabilities of Tor. So yeah, so it's yeah. cool, and of course we've got our regular <laughs> Java oh, update can't emergency. Can't believe patch. this again. Uh, again, we have not gone a week without one, Leo. Uh, we're with now three of these in the last month. So I think for the last three weeks. It's been, there's a new emergency update patch of Java, and you need to deal with it. So I think that really I figured yeah. this strategy out now. If they have a new one every week, pretty soon people figure it's all the same one. Oh, we already heard about that one. And it'll just, it'll say, well, there's just one problem that just keeps, you know, people keep reporting. But this well, is not. In, this is this no. new one. <laughs> and in this case, it doesn't even fix the problems they know about. They still know about vulnerabilities that have not been fixed uh, just with this latest one. So the latest one patches both the older Java 6 to update 43, and they had intended to stop moving Java 6 forward, but this is so bad they can't. And (laughs) Java 6 users are having this exploited against them, so Oracle had no choice but but to move it forward. Um, And they fixed, so they fixed two vulnerabilities, one of which was being used to install the so-called MCRAT, M, little, capital M, lowercase c, capital R-A-T. And as our listeners know, RAT is now the acronym, the sort of the generally accepted acronym for Remote Access Trojan. So, um, you know, a.k.a. botnet uh, node, essentially. But they, get this, Leo, they knew about this, which is why they were able to do it so quickly. They knew about this weeks ago, many, and were deciding, well, since it isn't being publicly exploited yet, we're going to hold off and roll that into our planned April update where they've got a whole bunch of other flaws that they're not doing anything with because no one apparently knows about them yet. No need to call attention to this. (laughs) Meanwhile, meanwhile... Our, our friend Adam Gaudiak, who is, you know, got to be Oracle's number one nemesis. He's the security researcher who keeps looking at Java, and every time he looks at it, he finds more things that are really bad and wrong. They, they came back to him with what he called his issue number 54 last week and said, this is not a problem. Okay. We don't agree with you oh, that what this a is a vulnerability. <laughs> oh, well, if Oracle says it's so not a vulnerability. He said, you know, but Adam knows what he's talking about. I mean, he knows Java better than they do. So he looked at the documentation, and the documentation for Java clearly stated that what they were doing now is not what the documentation says. So his response to them was, well, um, 
you either need to change the documentation or change the code. And, oh, by the way, since you made me go back and look at it, I found five more new problems. <laughs> you made me do it. I'm not kidding. He found five more problems when he because they said, no, 54 isn't a problem. So he said, well, yes, it is, and here's five more. Oh. And those are all present in the latest update. Now, is he publishing code or explaining how it's done, or is he holding no, on to it? No, he's being 100% responsible. Okay. He's sending them proof-of-concept code. But just to keep him honest, he's letting us know he's doing it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and to sort of keep the pressure on, right. because we know. I mean, their own behavior says unless they have to update it, right. they won't, right. even when they know their problems. So the, the consequence of this, I mean, remember that when we talk about exploits in the wild, those are successful installations of a Trojan on people's systems. So so we're it's easy to view this in the abstract, where it's like, oh, yeah, that's happening to other people. So, eh, but it is happening to other people, meaning that Oracle's decision not to patch this when they know about it is resulting in people's systems being being occupied with Trojan malware because they have Java on their system. And I think it was Brian who wrote uh, of this. Uh, no, maybe it was Computer World. I think it was because I did a, a bunch of, you know, just sort of backgrounding to see what people were, were saying. They made the interesting point that Java was really never intended to be a consumer platform. It was really more of a corporate platform to, for for corporations to roll out multi-platform solutions. Very much, for example, the way the Eclipse IDE that I've been using when I was writing code for the for the microcontroller, the little TI uh, microcontroller that I was experimenting with, or have, you know, I'm will will be again here shortly as soon as I get GRC's new server squared away. Um, it's all Java-based. And you know, th so there's a there's a useful I would say important place for Java where where software needs to be cross-platform. It, it's a useful cross-platform solution. The alternative is to write in cross-platform C or C++, but then you need to produce separate binaries that run on each OS. And, you know, there's really no good cross-platform solution. It's, it's a, you, you, then you're maintaining essentially separate source forks for, for every platform. Whereas Java, because it re represents a unifying virtual machine where the platform differences are subsumed by it, you really can have a single Java blob that will run on all these systems. The mistake people made is in making it a browser thing. And that's why our advice is take it out of your browser. Get rid of the Java plugin. I mean, really, Oracle ought to just remove it. Um, it ought to be something you manually install if, you're, if you have a, a known need for Java. It ought not install itself. So it ought to just, with the next update, it ought to remove it from the browser and then go back to being what it was supposed to be. And then for people whose companies have browser-based Java, then manually 
put it in. Instead, they they brag about it being in three billion devices every time. You know, every week that you get an update, it reminds you, oh look, we're in three three billion places. It says yes, and unwanted in most of them. <laughs> Lord, <laughs> it's it really is hard to believe. It's Unbe- just unbelievable. <laughs> hey, we're going through a rough patch in the industry, Leo. Yeah, I don't know how long. It's well, I wonder if they want to kill. Uh, uh, I mean, if Oracle just says, "Let's let's see." This has got to Java. be publicity that you know they damaging for yeah, them. It's not good and for Oracle. It's all because it's browser based. You know, Java on the desktop is fine, just yeah. not in the browser. Yeah, they can't get it right. Uh, Apple did a nice thing too. They updated Safari uh, a couple days ago to block all but the most recent version of Flash. So people who have not been keeping current with Flash, because, you know, Safari is still, they're lagging a little bit behind, or Apple, lagging a little bit behind in what everybody else has done, which is taking proactive responsibility for making sure that all these plugins are current. Um, I I don't blame them. We know how Apple feels about Flash in general. So, you know, it's, it's no longer being installed by default. It, if, if you, you know, they'll run it on your desktop. They will not run it on any of their iOS devices. Um, but Firefox and Chrome and now IE are proactively taking uh, responsibility for keeping Flash current and, and checking to make sure that you're running the most recent version and, you know, warning you clearly if you're not. Uh, Apple's doing probably what it what it ought to from its perspective which is they are they're you know updating safari to say okay this is not the most recent go get it if you really if you really want it and then and they have made changes that we know of where they'll disable flash if you're not using it actively it sort of goes to sleep and then you need to manually re-enable it so i mean i'm impressed with that that's, that's the what right they do with uh, java as well yeah. yeah yeah good that's the right thing to do hey before i know you want to talk about evernote Oh, yeah. Can I interrupt before you do? Please. Yeah, because we, we actually want to welcome a new sponsor, one that I think, well, I know you know, and I think most oh of our God, audience Rackspace? will know. Yeah, yes, Rackspace yeah. is terrific. They're fabulous, and uh, and we've been trying to get them on this uh, network for a long time. <laughs> um, Rackspace, I don't know if you know this, a couple of years ago, Rackspace and NASA, uh, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, ra- launched a, a project to create a uh, open source cloud stack if they called OpenStack. the idea was for um, any organization to be able to offer cloud computing surface services on a standardized hardware platform and uh, and that really is what rackspace wants to remind you about is cloud OpenStack and the cloud everybody uh, of course is talking about cloud computing but there is a difference most cloud technology companies and i won't mention names but you know who they are use proprietary technology you mean Amazon? Uh, which oh. makes it, or Microsoft, or I mean, there's a lot of them, but yeah. that makes well, it a lock right. in, right? Everybody else Google, Everybody's, Microsoft, yeah, Amazon. It makes it a lock yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, so it's understandable if you want a cloud solution, you'd like one built on open standards that you can move around. Uh, you could take your data with you if you want to leave, and that's Rackspace. They co founded OpenStack, and they now run the world's largest open cloud. And you know how I feel about uh, open versus proprietary. It is definitely. Uh, in my opinion, the only way to go, if you're, especially if you're going to create something that's uh, trustworthy, that you could trust your business and uh, 
and your apps too. You can move your apps, your code, your websites between multiple OpenStack-based clouds, public or private, on-premise or hosted. It's flexibility to build what you want, where you want it, how you want it. And, of course, Rackspace is well-known for their world-famous fanatical support. What a great company. So you can try this, by the way, free. Just go to Rackspace.com slash open. We know that uh, people who listen to security now are the kind of people who like to play with this stuff. Rackspace.com slash open. And uh, if you're looking for a place to host your next cloud deployment, I hope you'll think of Rackspace. We want to thank Rackspace so much for their support of security now. Build what you want, where you want it, and how you want it at Rackspace.com uh, slash open. That's it. It's not a, it's not, it's not a complicated ad. Uh, cool. I don't have a free trial because it's free. Uh, so just try it and uh, see what you think. Open is good, right? Right. Um. Everybody's been Ever- talking about Evernote. In fact, I'm just trying to log into my Evernote account because uh, they not only do they reset passwords, but they've downloaded new apps on all the platforms requiring. Because this is interesting. Well, you're going to get into this, but this is an interesting point. If you've installed Evernote on your, let's say, your iPhone, your iPad, your Android phone, you already have a token, and that token's not invalidated. Right. So uh, tell us what happened. Fill us in. You're the guy. So, okay, so... The, 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 the headline was 50 million passwords were reset. It's not that 50 million escaped, but um, what they posted on their blog, I think, is, is it's a classic example of how to do this right. Yeah, that was my they, supposition, and I, was, I wanted to talk to you. Because they had yes. the, the words that we've said we always want to see, hashed and salted. Yes, there was some speculation they were using MD5, but well, yes, it's MD5. It is MD5, and that's not the strongest hash, but it's it's probably strong enough. Um, So, what I think they did right, though, not not only was their technology right, but their their PR response response was correct. Yes, they 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 called it a service wide password reset, and they wrote. Evernote's operations and security team has discovered and blocked suspicious activity on the Evernote network that appears to have been a coordinated attempt to access secure areas of the Evernote service. As a precaution to protect your data, we have decided to implement a password reset. Please read below for details and instructions. In our security investigation... We have found no evidence that any of the content you store in Evernote was accessed, changed, or lost. We we also have no evidence that any payment information for Evernote Premium or Evernote Business customers was accessed. The investigation has shown, however, that the individual, paren S, individuals responsible were able to gain access to Evernote user information, which includes usernames, email addresses associated with Evernote accounts, and encrypted passwords. Even though this information was accessed, the passwords stored by Evernote are protected by one-way encryption. In technical terms, they're hashed and salted. While our password encryption measures are robust... We're taking additional steps to ensure that your personal data remains secure. This means that, in an abundance of caution, 
we are requiring all users to reset their Evernote account passwords. Please create a new password by signing into your Evernote account. After signing in, you'll be prompted to enter your new password. Once you've reset your password on Evernote.com, you will need to enter this new password in other Evernote apps that you use. We're also releasing updates, as you said, Leo, to several of our apps to make the password change process easier. So please check for updates over the next several hours. As recent events with other large services have demonstrated, this type of activity is becoming more common. We take our responsibility to keep your data safe very seriously, and we're constantly enhancing the security of our service infrastructure to protect Evernote and your content. There are also several important steps that you can take to ensure that your data on any site, including Evernote, is secure. First, avoid using simple passwords based on dictionary words. Never use the same password on multiple sites or services. Never click on reset password requests in emails. Instead, go directly to the service. Thank you for taking the time to read this. We apologize for the annoyance of having to change your password. But ultimately, we believe this simple step will result in a more secure Evernote experience. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact Evernote support. Sign the Evernote team. So, you know, that's, that's textbook. That's what you do. You, you store your stuff, your, your passwords in a, in a good fashion. The benefit of it being salted is that we don't know whether anyone knows what the salting value is. We don't know that that escaped, but it wouldn't, and it would not be easy to determine what that is. So if someone did not know what the salt was, we don't know. We also don't know if, if it's a per account salt and the salt is stored with the account information. I mean, there's a lot we don't know, but the idea is that, that, for a bad guy to make use of salted, leaked password information, they would need to run MD5 hashing as fast as they could, looking, you know, putting in dictionary words with the salt if they know what it is, see what comes out, and then look for that value in the database that they have acquired and see if they can see a match. If they do then they know that account's password in order to log into the account. Well, so we, we don't know whether they, they know what the salt is. If it's, if, it, if it's not known, then they really don't have anything to go on. I mean, they, they're, really, they're, they're really stopped. Um, if they do know what it is and it's a per-account salt, then then the, even the approach of looking it up in a big dictionary isn't going to be successful because they're not going to be able to run passwords through the hash and then see if anyone has it. They would be limited to using the salt with a single account. My point is that immediately retiring all of the passwords, which is what Evernote did, renders that escaped that lost data useless. Now, if emails are have escaped, as I think they did, then that's a problem if people, you know, have considered their email address secret. But at least it means that, you know, instantly every existing password was no longer valid 
and users then in a distributed fashion took on the responsibility of changing their password. And as you said, Leo, uh, apps operate by authenticating once and then achieving and, and, and then receiving an, an, an authentication token, which and we've seen this in other services where other services have asked people to change their passwords. But you, you and but it was like sort of a little strange that all of your applications into that service continued to function after that system wide reset. And what Evernote is doing is they're saying, OK, we're going to, you know, flush all the apps also um, and, and make and, you know, require people to update them. So um, this is similar, and the response is similar to what happened to LastPass, right? Uh, Twitter did the same thing, reset passwords. Although um, Twitter is an example of not having uh, to have, well, not having your applications having to re-authenticate. Right, right. They didn't push those out. Right. So Evernote really did everything they could do, except, unfortunately, prevent the initial hack. Yes, and um, with any luck, they. I mean, I guess I'm of a mind. I, I, I yes, yes, it's bad. Yes, it's hard to do this right. The the more the larger your organization is, the more the bigger your systems and your network is. The more people have access, the more ways there are in. I mean, it's just it's it is so difficult to to do this kind of security correctly. So um, I'm not of the of the mind that if someone makes a mistake, you drop them and right. go somewhere else because I believe they can learn from these mistakes. Right. I mean, they're, they're probably more secure now than they were before. So that's more reason to stay with the people that have, you know, learned this, this can actually happen. And the fact that they were already using salted hashing says, okay, they understand the fundamentals. Yes, it's not SHA-1, but, you know, MD5 is fine if it's salted and it's, and it's done right. And the evidence is it was all done right. Now, here's so, a question for you. I'm thinking um, I store right now, I store passports, driver's license, credit card numbers, social security numbers, everything my life is in Evernote. Hmm. Um, should I have should I move this over to LastPass? Would it be more secure? It would be, wouldn't it? Because Evernote stores this on their servers. Um well LastPass does too. LastPass backs up all of the the browser, the local browser it's blob. It's all automatically in, encrypted. Yeah, now yes. see we don't know. I know nothing about Last uh, Evernotes. It's not encrypted. Encryption. Uh well, it's in, it's clear text uh on my computer unless I explicitly encrypt it. And Ooh. that you have to do note by note. And furthermore, I don't know how they encrypt. Right. So I'm thinking LastPass might be a better choice. I trust them. We know we know the technology for LastPass because Joe has, you know, laid it out for me and us and it's been vetted and I mean it's bulletproof. Um I haven't looked to see whether Evernote has documented their technology. If they haven't, I would not consider using them. Yeah. If they have, I just haven't looked. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna. I, I think I'm gonna move all of that stuff that would really be horrendous if it were stolen. If it, yeah, uh, I think I'll move that. They, they, you know, Leo, they must be doing something. 
Good. Evernote uses 64-bit, according to Fred Flintstone in our chat room, he's uh, clicking, uh, linking to a uh, Evernote page, uh, 64-bit RC2. So that's secure. 64-bit? That's weird. That's a little low, isn't it? Yeah, it is a little low. Should be bigger. Yeah, and RC2, as long as they they do it right, it's secure. But I'm the advantage move it over is... to LastPass. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? 64-bit? That doesn't sound right. It should be much yeah, higher, not, right? Yeah, that's not many bits. Um, so, What type of encryption does Evernote do? Yeah, 64-bit. We derive a 64-bit RC2 key from your passphrase and use this to encrypt the text. This is the longest symmetric key length permitted by U.S. export restrictions. Oh, my goodness. That's uh, why. That's why. Um, that's no longer true, though, Leo. I thought that that changed. Yeah, it used to be 40-bit. first. In the right. first place, it was 40, not 64. And that hasn't been true for years. We do not receive any copy of the key or your passphrase or any escrow me- mechanism to recover your encrypted data. If you forget your passphrase, we can't recover it. Yeah, that's, that's all good. good. User authentication is performed over SSL. Uh, data in user notes is also transferred via SSL. But unless you explicitly encrypt it... Um, it is not. It's in the clear after it gets wow. to the servers. Wow. Several of the company's founders come from a strong encryption background, founders of Core Street. Um, so for Evernote's consumer product, the current encryption algorithms are chosen more for exportability under the Commerce Department rather than strength, since our software permits the encryption of arbitrary user data with no escrow. We'd be interested in offering something stronger when we have the staffing to fight the lengthy export battle. Wow. I wonder if that's I'm, – I'm, I thought there were no expert, export restrictions on crypto now. I mean, you can, I mean, everybody's doing 256-bit AES, which, you know, blows away 64-bit <laughs> RC2. use, I would say. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, I mean, you've uh, even got AES support in all the chips now. So it's no longer in – there's no way that it's slow – because you've got hardware level support for and everything for... I put in a LastPass secure note is by default encrypted, and yep. I've got two factor authentication turned on, which Evernote yep. will offer but doesn't currently offer. Correct. They, in fact, I was going to mention that they're excel. They've they've announced this week as a consequence, like as a consequence of last week's breach, that they are going to accelerate their plans. Uh, to offer two-factor authentication. We don't know anything more about, you know, what it would be. Maybe, you know, phone text message loop or right. or who knows. You know, maybe hardware token, but that's a problem on smartphones. So I'm um, inclined to move everything over to LastPass. I just feel better I'm, about it. I'm quite happy with LastPass. Yeah. Do you, where, so do you store online things like that? When you travel, yeah. for instance, you're supposed to take with you a copy of your passport. Uh, rather than do that, I take a PDF on my phone, in, encrypted PDF on my phone in Evernote. But I'm thinking I'm going to move it over to LastPass. Same. Yeah, I tell you, I'm I'm actually uh, still using Jungle Disk and am really happy with it. I've been very impressed. I kind of went back and took a look at it, and uh, it moves everything up to Amazon. It's I mean I know the architecture because Jungle Dave told us all about right. it back in the day. Right. And uh, and in fact, you know that Rackspace purchased Jungle Disk from from jungle dave so all right move on but yeah I'm sorry i just wanted to i just wanted to yeah. some advice on that i think i'm going to move everything all that all that stuff into LastPass. yeah it's hard to see how LastPass could have a problem that 
due to the architecture, they absolutely don't want the responsibility, and it's not possible to store anything in LastPass that isn't really strongly encrypted. Right. I like that. Uh, the other little bit of news I thought was odd, um, and this was this isn't like a problem in the wild, but you know <laughs> it could be soon. Um, a developer noted that only one browser in the industry had abided by published recommendations for limiting the amount of the local storage, which is a new feature of HTML5. So. There's, you know, traditionally the way a remote site could store data was with a cookie. Um, it's not very convenient because it has to go back and forth with um, request headers and reply headers. But cookie storage was limited to about 4K, sort of by by agreed spec, which is plenty of data if you just want to store, you know, a gibberishy looking token to represent who you are that you know you're logged on you're authenticated and so forth and you can store you know useful information in addition and 4k is plenty of space but the developers of the web said you know as we move more towards an application centric browser based platform it might be useful and lord i mean whose systems don't have gigabytes of data now it might be useful to allow something called local storage. So the there's a spec, the standard W3C specification under HTML5 for something called web storage. And this allows between 2.5 and 10 megabytes per domain name. For example, Chrome had, went low. They set their limit at 2. Firefox set theirs at 5, and IE sets theirs at 10. But in the specification at w3.org, under uh, the web storage facility, under their category of disk space, they say user agents, meaning browsers, should limit the total amount of space allowed for storage areas. User agents should guard against sites storing data under the origins other affiliated sites. For example, storing up to the limit in a1.example.com, a2.example.com, a3.example.com, etc., thus circumventing the main example.com storage limit. User agents may prompt the user when quotas are reached, allowing the user to grant a site more space. This enables sites to store many user-created documents on the user's computer, for instance. User agents should allow users to see how much space each domain is using. A mostly arbitrary limit of 5 megabytes per origin is recommended. Implementation feedback is welcomed and will be used to update this suggestion in the future. Now, <laughs> only Firefox heeded that warning. And a, a developer created a proof of concept which does exactly what the W3C org said could be done. And under Chrome 25, Safari 6, Opera 12, 
and IE10, it is possible to fill up the user's hard drive at the rate of one gigabyte of data stored every 16 seconds. And this was done on an SSD-based MacBook Pro. So to be more clear, if this isn't fixed soon, you could go to a malicious website that for no other reason than it wanted to, it could completely fill your hard drive with garbage, essentially, in, you know, at the rate of a gigabyte of garbage every 16 seconds. That's not good. That's not good. Would it now, fill uh, occupied space or just slack space? Oh, it's just slack space. Oh, okay. So it's not you know, erasing yeah, so anything. It, yeah, it's not erasing anything, but, you know, most people, hopefully, <laughs> if they've got their terabyte drives, they, they've got room, and this thing would just take it all up. Brrr. So... Anyway, this was I got a lot of tweets about this. That's the that's the story about that. I'm sure. Now, okay, I, I should mention also though there is a there's a little bit of a gotcha, because in some cases, subdomains are valid. For example, GitHub uses subdomains of GitHub.com to store legitimate individual user data. And so, you know, an app shot does the same things and, and many others. So, you know, so the problem is that it's not clear how this works. Do you, if you absolutely limited storage for the, for the second level domain, like example of example.com, then, then all of its subdomains would have to share that storage when in fact it might not be abusive might be legitimate yet there's no there's no mechanism i mean we, we really have a problem here because you know in, unless the whole browser had a limit but then then you'd have a limit on how many sites could do this so unfortunately there's a bit of a conundrum here that we haven't come up with a solution for other than and see you know they suggest involving the user oh my god <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to work. That's never going to turn out well. Where, you know, bo dialogue boxes are popping up saying, you know, this site would like to exceed its limits on the amount of storage it can use on your computer. People are going to go, what? You know, I mean, you'd think that was malware. I, I mean, you know, our listeners would anyway, and they, they would be right to be suspicious of that. So we it's not easy. It's not It's not clear what kind of a solution we have. I mean, unfortunately, I think the idea of, having websites able to arbitrarily store multiple megabytes of data on people's computers is just probably fundamentally bad. I, I'm not sure that I think that's a good idea at all. So maybe maybe that's why we're in trouble, is this was never a good idea. And there was a little bit of interesting news on the do not, do not track header front, which I thought was interesting. This is proceeding exactly as I predicted it would. Um, uh, Sands reported a story that I think they picked up from Computer World, if I remember, saying that groups representing the interests of Internet companies are speaking out against proposed legislation, meaning, okay, legislation is getting proposed, which, you know, was inevitable, that would require all online companies to honor do not track requests from consumers. 
One of the bill's sponsors, Senator Jay Rockefeller, said that companies are not currently honoring those requests. Whereas Lou Mastria, managing director of the Digital Advertising Alliance, who you can imagine is on the other side of this argument, disagrees, saying that the bill is unnecessary because self-regulation is working. That's always Technology. The- <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, we're yes. self-regulating. You know? Don't make us do it. We'll do it ourselves. Oh, we'll we'll uh, yeah. Uh, good luck with that. Technology-oriented think tank, the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, which, of course, tells you nothing about what, they, what interests they represent, noted that do-not-track legislation could be ultimately detrimental to consumers. Okay, now we know whose side they're on. Because a significant amount of web content is supported by targeted Internet advertising. The, and see, that's, to me, that's the big question, whether that's really true or not. Uh, it's not clear to me that profiling ever did work. Uh, yes, people like to have it, but it's not clear they need it. The proposed legislation would allow the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, our FTC, to enforce action against companies that do not comply with consumer do-not-track requests and would restrict online companies to collect only the data necessary to deliver their content or services. So, and then that puts the Apache web server in an interesting position, doesn't it? Because well, now, it's, what is the current status of that? Because I got a number of, well, one tweet from a guy said, you guys are idiots. <laughs> Say, you don't yeah. understand it all. Yeah, I know. I saw that tweet, yeah. Leo. They, they, he sent it to I both think, of us. I think he doesn't understand. But uh, He's a, a Unix weenie, and I understand that such people have strong feelings that aren't in the real world. He, well, he was um, defend. I guess he wasn't disagreeing with us. He was implying that we, we, we kind of misunderstood the intent. Which no, we well, he was arguing that because IE10 breaks the rules, that Apache has the supported, right. has the right, right. The, the server has the right to prevent that from being seen by the application right. on the server, and that is ridiculous. Right. The application could certainly make that decision. The server, I mean, is pure political peak on some Apache developer's part yeah. Yeah. to to preemptively remove information that the user's browser is sending to the application behind the server. It's ridiculous. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I just feel a little strong. <laughs> Actually, we'll see how the, we'll see how this turns out. I don't. Uh, I think. Yeah. It, I mean, it, I, you know, all, you know me. I I kind of defend the. Need for the need, si- the need because yeah. this is ha- sites that are giving you free services, whether I think you understand they, they it or be, not, are making will be the just they will be just fine, Leo. Well, and, and that's that I think true because I think tracking doesn't, in fact, make the ads any better. So, correct, but correct, but I think that uh, I, I don't know if I want to see governmental regulations against uh companies, you, you know, the next I mean, they maybe they'll say, oh, you shouldn't have ads at all. I mean, no, they're not going to. They're not going to say that. It's like, not. like you know, they're not going to take away your guns if they <laughs> if they say that we that we'd rather you didn't have submachine guns, you know, in your hip pocket. And, and the, so. I guess the presumption is that tracking is something that's done without the user's knowledge, and so, and I, I think that that's probably uh, an appropriate thing to protect. People, people who used to be in the advertising industry have said, if we knew what was really being done we'd all be screaming with our hair on fire. So 
Uh, in fact, there was some guy. Well, I don't know. If I want it's true. Get, but I, I know. I, we just need to have him talk to you, Leo. I'll I find don't him. Think that's he's true. around here somewhere. That's a, that's a popular thing to say. But I think there's. I think just as there are, there's uh, you know, paranoia on both sides. Let's put it that way. But you know, there's a lot of free, wonderful free web services that are ad supported, like this one, like this show. Now we don't use tracking cookies. We don't need to, but. Uh, uh, there are wonderful, you know, Facebook and Google and so forth that people are getting for free, and it sh- it certainly should be their understanding that there's there's a there's got to be some sort of payment for that. Uh, Leo, I have no problem with ads. Yeah. I just have problem with ads that surreptitiously link people across websites. That's the problem, and because it, it is being done without their knowledge right. and consent. Right. So, and I, I think if we broke that linkage, nothing would happen. Well, I think I, that I that's true. I, but I don't think that that's enough reason to say, let's turn it off. I mean, I agree with you. The tracking doesn't seem to really have any value at all. The other, well, my, uh, the but other that's thing, all we're turning off. We're just turning yeah, off no, tracking. But, but, but that's not for the government to decide whether it has value to the company that wants to use it. I think what you probably more properly could say is you've got to explain what's happening on a page to the viewer or, you know, the user so that well, they understand. How about how about if? How about the government saying if a user asserts they do not wish to be tracked, then don't track then them. I think that's fine. They, okay, yeah. that's and that's really I all we're that's saying. Fine. I think that's fine. Um, and yeah. by the way, as a result of all of this paranoia, uh, justified or not, um, we're putting a, tr- a cookie policy on our page because we we do use tracking cookies in some ways, but I mean we use them I think in a benign way. For instance, Google Analytics. Um, but you know, people are very paranoid about it all. So well. And and what we need to see is you need to go to a site that says, hi there, we notice that your browser has a do not track header right. asking that no tracking be done. Uh, this but site see, this is, is a little unfair. So let's say I say I don't want, tra- I don't want any tracking. But, and I don't think it's for the government to decide whether Facebook needs tracking or not. But let's say I don't want – the government says I should be able to say I don't want to be tracked and I want Leo, to use Facebook for free. Leo, Leo, it's not Facebook that's tracking. It's their advertisers. Facebook has okay. nothing to do with this. Facebook can't stop it. Well, Facebook but is out of the But understand they entirely. charge a certain amount to their advertisers, and the ah. presumption is that the advertisers are getting their value. Let's right. say – I don't think it's for the government or you or me to say whether that value implies tracking or not. I think what this really is is like ad block. It's like enforcing the right to ad block. It's saying you, you should be able to use Facebook for free, whether you feel like – whether they f- like it or not. And I don't think that's right. So I guess what will start happening, and I think this almost certainly will be what happens, is that you will be offered the right not to to not have tracking, but they will also say, "But you then you can't use our service." Yeah, and that and that's fine, and, and yeah. that was what I was about to say, or yeah. that's what I was saying was that you'll go to a site and it'll say, "Hi there, you have do not track on." Yet this site depends upon the additional revenue that's generated by tracking you in order to function. So. Go into your browser and turn that off right now, and then we'll happily allow you right. in. And that's what you're going to see, then, which is and then, a fragmenting of the web. But that's what you're going to see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there, will, there will be people who will go, oh, I'd rather go somewhere else. And there will be people who go, oh, I didn't realize. I'll turn that off for right. you. No problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fine. Yeah, I think it's probably all right. So I had a tweet from someone asking me something I didn't know. Which is, what's the URL for signing up for Audible and giving credit to security now? Audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. 
Security Now, just all one word. Yeah, but they'll be tracking you as a result. <laughs> that's called tracking you, right? <laughs> but that's it. Audible Podcast. In fact, while we're doing it, I'll do the Audible ad. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's a very benign sort of tracking. It's kind of an opt-in tracking because if obviously if you go to that URL, you're sending a signal intentionally to Audible. Hey, I saw this on Security Now. Um, but I guess that's a little different. It's completely different. It's yeah. not tracking at all. Tracking is linking people, right. a, a linking people across websites. Right. That's what what everyone objects to. Right. And right. and aggregating a database about people's identities, anonymous or not, and often not, in order to in order to build a profile of them. Right. And people are saying, "Eh, we'd rather not have that." Right. Understandable. Yeah. Um, um, and I don't think that uh, asking people to go to our URL is uh, in any way an invasion of their privacy. In fact, what we're saying is let them know you heard about it on Security Now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fine. Uh, the Audi's awards are out. The nominees are out. These are the uh, kind of the Oscars of the uh, Audible book uh, group. And I pay attention oh. to this every year because these are the best experiences in audiobooks. I guess that's the best way to put it. In everything from biography to fiction to history, multi-voiced performances. I always like those. Uh, those are where you get sometimes like dramatizations of the book. Yeah. Bram Stoker's Dracula, for instance, with Alan Cumming, Tim Curry, Simon Vance. Wouldn't that be cool? Ooh, it's free right now. I mean, really free. Special price, zero. I'm adding that to my cart. That is awesome. Wow. Oh, I already have it. <laughs> okay you do okay uh my awesome awful popularity plan this is obviously a kid's book by seth rudetsky with a whole cast performing it the privilege of the sword october morning suddenly a knock on the door that is all by john hodgman that's when we love no these are all books you can get at audible.com the best bookstore of audiobooks you've ever heard of i mean that ever could be, 100,000-plus titles in every category, fiction, uh, nonfiction. I mean, I listen to a lot of history, politics. Uh, I love listening to the tech books. They've got a whole bunch of them. The biographies, the memoirs. It is a f- And, of course, you know, thrillers and mysteries. I was listening to uh, a uh, John Grisham a novel, one of his early ones, The Rainmaker. It was, it's so good. It's so well-read. You just... You want to drive around the block just to keep the book going a little extra. If you commute, if you go to the gym, if you have any time when you'd like to be reading but you can't hold a book, Audible's a great solution. Your first book's free when you go to audible.com. Uh, actually, our special URL is audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And uh, you'll get the uh, uh, one book a month subscription plan, the gold plan, they call it. And, but your first month's free. Your first book is free. You can cancel at any time in that first month. Pay nothing but keep the book forever. I don't think you're going to want to cancel. You're going to love it. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And yes, all the Honor, Honor Harrington books are there. Uh, yes, all the, uh, what is that other one you like? The uh, And now it's Michael McCollum. Oh, uh, yeah, Michael McCollum's up there. Yeah. Yep. I, got, I, I forgot. I got to add him. I've got a couple the of Ant- credits. The, the Antares trilogy, Leo, that's where you want to is start. Is that the best it's, one to start with? Oh, it's fantastic. Yes. I mean, the... Um, the Gibraltar trilogy is really fun. Also, that's that's the I one think I where I read that one. Yeah, they know they're coming, we, right? Yes, we discover that there's a galactically powerful civilization that somehow 
hasn't found us yet, but we're like right in the middle of it, and our radio <laughs> sphere is expanding at light speed. It's reach them and at some point, one of their listening posts is going to pick it up, <laughs> and we're in trouble. So, and they they enslave all the races that they that they encounter because you right. know once you get to you achieve critical mass, no one else can stop you. Absolutely. So it's oh, really Absolutely. fun. Absolutely. Uh, there you go. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We've just made it impossible to choose one book. <laughs> We've given you way too many. All right, move so, on. I heard from a uh actually this just this morning, Brian Hall, who is a frequent tweeter uh to me. Uh he's B Hall 7X. Uh he just sent back, he said, Wizmouse is awesome. Been uh-huh. using it for about a year on Windows 7 and love it. And our listeners will remember that Cat Mouse is what I had previously recommended. But another listener in our Q&A, I think last week, said, hey, WizMouse, oh, yeah, it was our bonus question number 11, uh, said WizMouse solves the, the, the problem of, of being able to use your mouse wheel over whatever window you're currently hovering over without needing to click and activate it. And it takes away the third button, you know, the middle mouse wheel button functionality which he always was turning off so if you use that stay with cat mouse if you don't apparently whiz mouse is better i still haven't gotten around to using it or, or, or to looking at it but i just wanted to pass that on and also despite your poo-pooing my my music choice leo um Ugh. many many tweets <laughs> have come back who t- who checked out chuck wilde's liquid mind series of 10 cds and uh, one good friend who's a who's a coder commented that it's the only music he has ever been able to code to. So yes, it does. I, I know you think of it as putting you into a coma rather than into you know a state of relaxation. But I just I didn't want listeners to be discouraged by uh, <laughs> by your opinion. Since no, I didn't liked say it, it was so. that. Did I really say it was that bad? I just uh, thought yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you did. You me. started to snore. <laughs> Um, and I got a nice note dated, or yeah, March 4th, just Monday, from a Cartier, oh, I'm sorry, Gabriel Cartier, because uh, he reversed his last name, my first name, in the, in the from line. He uh, titled Spinrite Testimonial. He said, hi, Steve. I'm a longtime Security Now fanboy and Spinrite user. In episode 386, you mentioned a testimonial about a user accessing raw data with Spinrite. I have had excellent results with a USB SATA IDE dock that I have mapped over a USB line to a DOS VM in VirtualBox. I lock a drive and start the virtual machine, and I'm off and rolling, all along giving me full access to my host system while Spinrite chugs away in the background on the external drive. Testimonial, he says, I saved a friend's data. Larry, the owner of a golf shop, had all of his tax info on his laptop. Yeah, it's that time of year, folks. After letting his laptop sit for a little while, he says, parens six months, when they tried to boot up Windows, gave them the unmountable boot volume error. Yeah, we hate those. I knew right away what to do. I ran Spinrite for about 30 minutes, and it completed the level four scan on the hard disk drive. Error repaired. I booted the system, ran a disk defrag analysis using the portable JK defrag from portableapps.com. 
95% fragmented. So I ran a defrag and gave the system back. They're now able to do their taxes. They're very thankful to me and you, the creator of this great tool. Regards, Gabriel Chartier, or maybe it's Cartier, in Loveland, Colorado. That's so, nice. That's really nice. Gabriel, thanks for sharing that. Excellent. So, are you ready? I'm ready for the tour. <laughs> okay. Tour so, 2.0. Yeah. So, um, everything changed since we talked about it last. The way it used to work, real quick reminder, is it used to be purely a user-anonymizing service, allowing people who wanted to access Internet servers or services out on the public Internet to do so without their IP and thus location, ISP, and potentially their identity being known. The way that was done was by by hopping among a network of Tor nodes. Each node is a is a sort of a, a, a Tor server, and they are all interconnected. And the idea is that you know we've all seen the sci-fi movies where, or actually not even science fiction anymore, where bad guys bounce around through multiple servers out on the internet. And then finally make a, you know, do whatever they're going to do. Uh, often it's, you know, on, t- on TV, if they're making a phone call bouncing off of some satellites and things, which makes it difficult to figure out that they're actually next door. Um, so what was so cool about this, the, the word TOR was an acronym originally, stands for the Onion Router. And it actually was a follow-on to an Onion Router network, which was the which was the first thing created. And oddly, there's sort of some strange U.S. government entanglement here. I mean, even now, it's under the auspices of the Naval Research Lab. And it was originally created out of ARPA and DARPA. Oh, now I'm suspicious. Well, no, it's because I think it's because we, too, need anonymity. I mean, like, wouldn't the NSA like to be able to do things and not have it traceable back to them? So, I mean, and, and so it's what we have is a, I mean, and, and Leo, it's all open source. I mean, everyone knows exactly what these Tor nodes are running. It's all done academically. I mean, it's, so there's no way to be suspicious of this. It's that there are, you know, it's not only people, individual users who want anonymity, it's, uh, it's you know the you know the EFF has been a supporter of this and and the free software Fa- uh, free software foundation gave them an award a couple of years ago for for advancing the social in, you know free social interests of of technology on the internet to allow you know people in in repressive governments to to be able to have free speech so you know there's a lot of good here um, but it's, to me, it's interesting that it was and still is there's some governmental support behind this thing being developed, which I think is interesting. Um, General so the Petraeus should have used it. <laughs> the way it originally worked is a client would pick at random a few Tor nodes and each Tor node advertised or published its public key 
So, so the the client, the user, the, the the there is an onion router node, but then there's also sort of a there's software that you run in your machine, which is your interface to the Tor network. So, a couple of nodes out of the cloud of of available Tor onion routers would be chosen, and their public keys would be gathered. The user then takes the payload that they want to put out anonymously on the internet. And by that, I mean, you know, a, a request for a page on a website somewhere or a posting to a socially controversial site or who knows what. Whatever it is they want to, they want to hide the origin uh, uh, as being themselves. They, they encrypt that with the last node that they're going to visit, the so-called exit node where their data will finally leave the Internet. Then they put on the out, so, so, so they encrypt that payload and sort of think of it as like sticking into an envelope um, or it's called an onion router because of layers of an onion. So you can think of it like maybe being a sphere and, and, and you wrap it with encryption so that no one can get in. Then on the outside of that, you put the address of that node that last node. Then you go to the the node that will precede that one, the node that will be previous to that as you're sending stuff out. And you and again, you know what its public key is, so you use its public key to encrypt that sphere. And then you on the outside of that, you put its address. And then you choose the third one, maybe it's the first one you're going to send something to, and you encrypt what you have so far with its public key. Now you've got this multi-layered blob, and you send it to the first node. So first of all, that connection out to some random Tor node somewhere is encrypted under its public key, and only it has the matching private key. So no force on earth that we're aware of is able to access that. But even if someone did, it's still got, remember, two more layers of encryption in these layer, these nested layers of onion uh, in order to actually get down to the payload. So You're what selling happens a lot is, of spin right today. <laughs> so what actually happens is that first node... Since, since that the outer shell was encrypted with its public key, the first node to receive it is able to use its private key to essentially unwrap that layer, to decrypt that layer. Then what it finds is, remember, on the outside is the address of the next node. It can't decrypt the contents inside because only the next node has that. But, it ha- but on the outside is the address. So it sends this blob, which is still opaque to it, onto the second node. The second node receives it, and now the outer layer, it was encrypted with, the, with its public key. So it uses its matching private key to decrypt that layer, which exposes the address of the third node, and underneath that is the remaining encryption under the, that third node's public key. So it has no access to that either. And notice that 
that second node, the one in the middle, it only knows that it got a blob from another onion router, but it has no knowledge of where that came from. That is, it doesn't know who sent it to that onion router. So this, this we're going to see the number three a lot because that sort of seems to be like the sufficient number of, of nodes involved to create anonymity no matter which way you come at it and how you look at it. Because that's that second guy receives it from the first one, doesn't know who the first one received it from, and all it knows is to send it on to the, to the third one. And then the third one, similarly, only knows that it received it from the second one, has no idea that it, whether it came from an individual or from another onion router, because all trace of the earlier hops have been removed. The, those, those previous shells... If we were, if if we look at it like a you know a spherical onion, those shells have been have been decrypted and stripped off and removed, removing all trace of its history. And at no point along the way has anyone been able to see what this thing have any of the intermediary nodes, onion router nodes, been able to see what this thing contains. Finally, it gets to the third hop, which was the remember the first encryption done of the actual payload. So that final onion router decrypts it as only it's able to because only it has its private key that matches the public key that it advertises. So it decrypts it and now here's a standard internet packet which it simply drops out on the internet. That is the so-called exit node from the Tor network, and the packet goes off, as packets do, bouncing around regular routers towards its destination. So that's the Tor system as it was. Now, there was a redesign to, to, to address some, some theoretical problems with this. There were, there, there were various people who said, well, you know, if you, even if you couldn't encrypt the data... If you stored the data, then if at any future time it was ever possible to determine the private key from the past of an onion router, then and if you got the if you happen to get the private keys associated with the paths that that blob took, then you could decrypt it and obtain all the information. So what this system used to lack is something known as perfect forward secrecy. We've talked about what perfect forward secrecy is. It is, it is this property that, that you should not be able to learn something in the future which allows you to go back into the past and obtain knowledge that, that the past wouldn't want you to have. So the system was re-engineered and many other capabilities, including what we're about to discuss here, hidden services occurred. So here's how this was re-engineered. Instead of the user in advance choosing the route that the payload is going to take and building up an onion and then just dropping it on to the first onion router, and off it goes. The, the capabilities in the onion routers were increased. Notice that 
with what I just described, the original system, there was no state being maintained. There was no notion of connections or or persistent state. That is, the onion router would just sort of sit there. It didn't have to have any history at all. And if a blob came in, it would see whether it was able to decrypt it using its private key. And if so, it would then send the blob on to the next jump in the router or out onto the internet if it if it was the if it happened to be the last one to decrypt the innermost shell no knowledge was necessary this changed with the rewrite of tor and and this move to 2.0 now what happens is that a that the the user establishes a session with the first onion router node it 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 sends it 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 all the, all the onion routers still broadcast a public key but unlike the original system where that public key was used for encryption and that was the weakness instead we now use session keys uh, that are established with a so-called Diffie-Hellman handshake and we've talked about the way that works that's the exponentiation approach where uh, anyone can observe the traffic going in both directions, but even the person observing it is unable to determine what the mutually agreed upon key is from looking at all of the dialogue back and forth. And this, for example, is um, an, an option now in SSL and TLS protocols and very well established, very secure, very quick and lightweight too. So... So the the client um, sends a it, it gets the the first onion router's public key, and it sends the first half of this Diffie-Hellman handshake encrypted under that first router's public key. So the first router receives that. It decrypts it because and only it's able to using its private key. And then it has the first half of this two-way handshake. It finishes the handshake, sends back the second half of the handshake to the client, and hashes the resulting session key and signs it with it. Okay, I'm sorry, I went a little fast. And so so when, when it finishes the handshake, now it has the session key. Once the client receives that second half of the handshake, the client also will have the matching the matching session key for the encryption. So to, to to prove that the the onion router also has it, the onion router hashes that key and then signs it with its with its private key, which only it has, and sends that packet back. So the client now receives that. D, which it believes came from the onion router that it's trying to establish a connection to, it decrypts that using that router's public key, which will only work if it was signed with the router's private key. That returns, the, the, that finishes the handshake, allows it to establish the, the, the secret pseudo-random session key that they will be using to communicate henceforth, and it's able to verify that they both had the same session key by decrypting the hash of the key. So now we've got 
a, a we've securely and and with authentication of the onion router established a connection sort of the first link now the client chooses another onion router on the network but does not contact it directly instead it uses the link that it's established to the first onion router to do exactly the same thing that it just did with the first one essentially sort of sort of virtually moving itself to, on, to the other side of that first link. So now the second link is, is similarly established between the first onion router and the second onion router using exactly the same protocol. And then it moves itself out to the second onion router to establish a third link and so on. Typically, as I said before, three links. So, so that's the approach used. It's still the case that the that the data is bouncing from one onion router to the next, and the and as a consequence of moving up this chain of links, the the a series of session keys has been created for encrypting each link, and and that same session key is used for creating an onion wrapped packet which is then sent down the link and as it bounces each session key is used to decrypt the successive layers and since the session keys are ephemeral as, as the term is they're 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 only used briefly for that connection at no point in the future would compromise of a router's private key give anybody any information about how to decrypt um, data that was stored um, moving through or, emer or, or yeah, mo moving through the the onion router network. So, so that's the difference. It's sort of, it's it's subtle, but it's significant. And it, it, essentially, what's been done is a, a a more sophisticated protocol has been created. So, what we have now is essentially what we had before. That is the ability for a user to hide themselves on the network. What we want is something new, which is the ability of services like websites, IRC chat servers, meeting areas, whatever, internet services that are traditionally always public because the only way to reach them is over the public internet with an IP address, the, the gurus of Tor said, you know, we could hide these. We could use the Tor system to allow people to publish public services, meaning available to anyone who uses Tor, so that the services were available from within the Tor network and not publicly. And the only way to get to them is through the Tor network, meaning that they do not have public IP addresses and that no one, that no one using them can gain any knowledge of where they are where they physically exist in the world, where they physically exist on the Internet. So it's sort of a next-generation evolution of Tor. The way it works is this. Somebody who wants to offer 
a service of any sort, any kind of internet service that it that anonymous users can access and that itself wants to remain anonymous, chooses three onion router nodes at random, just, you know, three. And it, and these are called introduction points. So we have introduction points are for, for a given service are three routers, you know, three onion routers on the network. The service creates a long-term public key pair so, so that it can have a public key which is used within the network to identify its service. So this public key represents this service. It, the, the, the service establishes circuits, static circuits, that, that, that continue to exist with each of these three introduction points. And we're using three for redundancy, so that if one was off the net for a while or disappeared, it would always be possible to, to you know, pick a third one. But in the meantime, you'd like to have a way to get to the service. So three gives us redundancy. So it establishes a circuit to these introduction points using the same, the, the new protocol I just explained, where it, it, you know, successive links that protect its identity. Notice that, that its identity is being protected now as a service in the same way that the user's identity was being protected as a client. So it establishes over uh, three hops links to introduction points. So, and, and, and it says, here is my public key for anybody who wants to access me. Um, let's keep this circuit open. And if anyone wants to access me, they will reference this public key. Then the service in a Tor directory publishes the its public key and the identity of the three introduction points it has chosen. It signs that and encrypts it with its public key to, to give it authentication. And, and a 16-character token is statically created from that information. And that's what's known to the public. So the address of the service is this random 16-character token dot onion. That's, that, that's like the domain name within the Tor system. 16 characters that are derived from its directory entry, dot onion, in the same way that, you know, we have dot org and dot net and dot com. So now, out of band, without, with no, not using the Tor system at all, some user has been notified or, or heard that there's a service in with hiding within the Tor network which is, you know, offers something that the user wants. So the client now, it uses its Tor interface to say, I want to connect to this service. And so it uses that funky 16-character token dot onion in order to make the, con in order to initiate the connection. What it does is it, it goes to the Tor directory and uses that, to look up uh, the information it needs. It gets a one-time cookie 
uh, a so-called nonce, N-O-N-C-E, a nonce, which will represent its, itself just for the purpose of authentication. Now it chooses at random an, a, a node in the Tor network, which, will, which we call the rendezvous point. And so it opens a circuit, three hops, out to a node, which is the so-called rendezvous point. And it, so it, it connects to it, and it says, hey, um, I would like to rendezvous with this service. Here's the service's descriptor. Um, please set that up for me. So the, the uh, I'm sorry, it, it establishes the rendezvous point and, and um, as the place where the service is going to connect. So three hops out to the rendezvous point. Then, then it, it talks to, it connects to the introduction point, which are sort of like the three listening outposts for the service. And it says to the, to the introduction point, hi there, I'm, I'm waiting at the rendezvous point since you're representing the service, you're one of the three rendezvous points the service has chosen, please notify the service of my interest in connecting to it, and I'll be over at the rendezvous point. So the introduction point that has one of those three introduction points that has the, that, that, that static circuit up and connected to the service, it sends this information to the service along with that cookie, remember, that, that it's been given by the client, the service then is able to decide if it wishes to accept the connection. So this provides uh, um, uh, installation against any kind of denial of service attack or bandwidth flooding attack and so forth. Nothing is able to get to it directly. It essentially has to mutually agree with the client that it wants to offer the service. So if assuming that it does, it then establishes a, a multi-hop circuit to the rendezvous point. So it'll have its three links anonymizing it again to the rendezvous. It gets there, hands the rendezvous its agreement to connect along with the cookie the, the pseudo-random cookie that the client gave, the rendezvous point forwards that to the client because the client has a connection to it who was established first. The client receives back the cookie which which it initially gave. That gives off the, and there's, you know, wrappers of encryption on all of this. And that cookie was, was signed then, before it was sent back, signed by the advertised services private key so that only its matching advertised public key is able to decrypt it, thus authenticating the fact that it has received the cookie back from the real service. Now, the client and the service both have mutually anonymizing multi-hop connections to the rendezvous router and it passes traffic back and forth between them anonymously. And <laughs> that's how the new system works. Well, that was simple enough. I don't know yeah. why anybody would be at all confused by that. <laughs> so 
backing off from this a little bit, essentially what this means, oh, and I should say that the standard core, the standard Tor client software, the, the, the software that people get from Tor to load on their computer to access the Tor network, it is the hidden service software. That is, it's the same package. So mm. anybody who has a computer that wanted to publish information uh, anonymously on the internet through Tor is able to use the same. It's not like you have to go get something secret or special or something somewhere. Everybody has it, so anyone can be a publisher and and can you know essentially establish introduction points, publish their 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 um, identity on the directory, and then arrange through some out of band means, you know, on a mailing list or who knows where to, or you know, put it on some other website. Here's a service that we're offering at this funky address, and then people are able to connect to it. They're anonymous, and it's anonymous, and everything is encrypted from end to end. And it's done in a way that thwarts, you know, everyone's best effort to attack this. So this sounds like a big improvement. It's a huge improvement. Yeah. It's, yes, it is. It's, you know, you take sort of the original concept and implement it and then think about it. Address and the issues were, that we've mentioned many times with it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and do you many, feel this addresses those issues, the endpoint issues, things like that? Yeah. The only thing that they're, they're still, the, the only weakness that we know of is that it still wants to be fast. That yeah. is, it wants to <laughs> send. <laughs> well, yes, it's certainly you it's know kind of the nature I mean, of this because of the layers that it's going to be a little slower than direct. Well, but here's the part: is that if it's not heavily used, then people monitoring traffic uh, going in and out can associate, yeah. sort of statistically associate right. the the events of traffic entering and exiting this large cloud of onion routers, even though that's bouncing around for a while. I mean, still, if it's, if it's heavily used, then it becomes much less easy to, to disambiguate entry and exit events. Now, I mean, this is well known. So, for example, all it would have to do is introduce arbitrary delays in the forwarding of traffic from one onion router to the next. And then it would completely break the ability to use temporal the, the temporal connectivity of traffic entering and exiting the cloud to associate those events. On the other hand, it would really make it slow. So they've said, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're, you know, the bigger the, the network is, the more Tor nodes there are, the more busy it becomes over time. They're recognizing that, that while it's in its infancy with a few nodes and, and not much traffic – it's easier to associate incoming and outgoing events. Um, even, though they're, even though the incoming events are encrypted and the outgoing events are encrypted if they're going out to a hidden service. But, you know, but still the... the they're the, likely to be related statistically. Yes, there's not a the lot of relationship of, yeah. of them right. uh, statistically um, is, is the concern. They've said, look... Um, that's not that's not the problem we're solving. We're going to make you know the, again the the more nodes there are, the more the more popular the network is, the more use it sees, the less feasible. Oh, and notice too, you in order to make the statistical process work, you really need to monitor all the nodes. 
Well, they're also geographically diverse. They're all over the globe now. So it makes it very difficult for any single entity to have network-level access to, to the entire Tor node network. I mean, many of them are deliberately in obscure locations. So uh, anyway, it's, it's a, you know, my, my sense is if I were to hook up to Tor and do something through it, you know, there's kind of a coolness factor. It's like, oh, wow, I'm, you know, really can't, no one can find me. It's like, well, okay, I, that's never a problem that I have. <laughs> People can find you. <laughs> but there's, a, yeah, they know where I am. But there's a coolness, there's sort of a coolness factor to it. Well, so, And Tormail is probably the best example of a hidden service. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's a perfect, perfect yeah. example. And that's one where speed is not an issue. Um, right. And it's a hidden service. So, uh, in fact, if you go to the tormail.org page, it says, this is this is just an informational page. None of Tormail systems are hosted here or any server you can find the IP address. <laughs> Seizing or shutting down this website will have no effect on Tormail services. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, because, and you know, go ahead, find us. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. It, that's a really, yeah. I think that's a very good example of uh, of using a, tour, a hidden service in Tor. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, one of the takeaways from this is you know, for everyone who just completely glazed over and, and wished they were listening to Liquid Mind for the last 15 <laughs> minutes rather than me, um, or their mind has been liquefied. Uh, I am Liquid Mind. Jellified. Um, look at what it takes to create anonymity. That's how yeah. non-anonymous yeah. the Internet is. Yeah. They, they, they didn't do this just because they were bored one afternoon. I mean, it takes that much in order to, to truly anonymize the Internet. So anyone who's thinking, oh, you know, knows who I am, is like, oh, because they don't care. But anyone who cared would absolutely know who you were. And so, so I, I think I think this is an interesting lesson, is that this is what it takes. All of that rigmarole in order to protect, to truly protect identities on the Internet. Yeah. And even then, if the data that you send gives away who you are, well, then you're not anonymous anymore. <laughs> and you were worried about tracking cookies. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> so I, had to, I, had to, I had to throw that in. Steve, <laughs> Steve Gibson is the guy at GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. That's how you can find him on the uh, Internet. Uh, you can also follow him on the Twitter, SGGRC. Um, now, if you go there, you'll find a lot of uh, stuff, free stuff like his great Shields Up service. But don't forget his bread and butter, the yabba dabba doos you hear in the background, all come from one and only one thing, and that's Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility. you got to have it if you have a hard drive. So and pick up a from copy. many of our really great listeners, Leo, who have just really been you know, supporting me and my efforts and my ability to do this and offer all this oh, stuff. so pleased. For free. Yeah. It comes all from Spinrite. <sighs> Steve uh, does, um, on his own, make 16 kilobit versions available of the show, uh, audio. So it's, you know, that's, a, that's a very small file. Uh, he also does transcripts, the smallest file of all, uh, human-typed actual legible transcripts of each and every show both of those oh, yeah are... lane, lane researches them I mean, every single thing i mentioned she goes and makes sure that it's spelled right and i'll give you an example i almost can guarantee you if you're looking at the transcript right now tor is spelled capital t lowercase o r i Cause, promise because she figured it out right yep that's how good she is elaine good job and if it's not well she's going out and fixing it right now the global search and replace <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you can, <laughs> she's, 
She listens to this, too. Well, She's, of course, you know, she has to. She's typing it. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and by the way, uh, you can uh, watch this show live. We do it live every uh, Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time. I almost had to punt today because my son Henry's uh, giving his seniors was giving his senior speech right about now. And oh. I was I was just either going to leave or have Ayaz do the show, but it turns he moved it to Monday. Thank goodness. So I can go see his senior speech. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so and he's really come together, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. He's uh, he's waiting. He got into Arizona State. He's waiting to hear from uh, Cal State uh, Chico and Colorado University Boulder. You see, you see, Boulder. You don't uh, want him to go to Chico. They're both party schools. I said, yeah. Henry, is it a coincidence <laughs> that you picked the two biggest party schools in the United States? He said, they are. I said, yes, they are. <laughs> But you know what? Any college in the U.S. is a party school on a Saturday night, so I don't know if it makes any yeah, difference. True. Uh, <laughs> if you want a party, you'll find a party. Uh, but ASU is a great school. You know, that's where Lawrence Krauss uh, teaches, and I, 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 he's interested in music, so he's he's applied to schools that have good music programs. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, any event, um, I got a little sidetracked. We you watch the show 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time uh that would be 1900 utc and it's great to have you live with we, we, the people in the chat room we all uh, chat together as it's going on um but uh, if you can't watch live as i mentioned on-demand versions available at steve's site and we have a higher quality audio as well as video at twit.tv slash sn security now twit.tv slash sn and of course you can always get a copy wherever finer network internet broadcasts are aggregated and served <laughs> 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 um, I guess that's it next week uh, Q&A so do go to grc.com slash feedback if you have questions about security privacy or any of the things we've talked about on the show and Steve yep. will answer 10 of them next week I'll read them and we'll be back in a week thank you Steve thanks Leo security now